I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us for another episode of Mental Health News Radio. Today we have Dr. Brian Quinn with us. Dr. Quinn, please tell our audience about what you do. Okay, well thanks so much for uh, having me on, Melanie. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm a a clinical social worker in private practice. I have been in private practice for over 20, 25 years and been in the mental health and substance abuse treatment field for, well, more years than I want to count now, probably 35 or more. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I got interested in this topic, depressed, borderline, or bipolar, uh, probably about beginning about 20 years ago when Prozac first hit the market. Uh, Back when I first started practicing, very few people were on antidepressants and uh, and uh, starting in the late 80s and early 90s, now everyone's on antidepressants. And I, I, I soon noticed that a lot of people in my practice on antidepressants, especially young people, were just not doing well. So I started doing some research and found out that a lot of young people actually have what are called, uh, or depressed, actually have called bipolar spectrum illnesses. You know, they may not have a history of mania, but they're, they have the family history markers and age of onset that are consistent with it. So um, it kind of grew from there. And then uh, I wrote a a book for the general public uh, and then another one for mental health professionals a little more recently on this whole topic. Well, what's the name of your book? Well, the first one was called The Depression Sourcebook. Uh, It's out in the second edition. And the, the one for mental health professionals was part of a series by Wiley, Called the Wiley uh, Wiley Guides to Mental Health. Mine was bipolar disorder. So, gotcha. I'm sorry. Wiley Concise Guides to Mental Health Bipolar Disorder. Bipolar disorder. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. What you know? I'm a clinician too. So, and I definitely ended up uh, having certain areas that. Honestly, I just kind of fell into it wasn't that I was really interested in them. In fact, a couple of them, I was always like, nope, don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. But it just ended up being, I guess, where my strengths were. Uh, Mm -hmm. So what how do you remember how you kind of started 
getting the specialization in um, bipolar and depression? Well, people come to mental health professionals uh, very often for symptoms of depression and anxiety. And uh, as I said, I began to notice that a lot of people who were on antidepressants, especially young people, were just not doing very well. I'm sure I'm not alone. Your listeners have probably seen patients or clients who've been on two, three, four different antidepressants, and they just don't get better or they don't stay better, or they get somewhat better, but they're never well, and they cycle in and out of this. So this is an observation I made and let me do some research and you know, I found out that well for bipolar illness uh, antidepressants are absolutely the wrong treatment uh, despite very common practice in the United States today the research and the best science indicate that antidepressants um, don't work very well for bipolar disorder and in subsets of people with so-called mixed depressive disorders, typically young people who are depressed but agitated and angry as well, they actually make them worse and increase the risk of suicide. Goodness. Um, well, I think, you know, we all have extra concerns when it comes to young people because you have heard so many things about, um, de you know, depression and medication and young kids and their minds are so vulnerable at that stage when they're going through puberty. So I, I understand uh, parents' concerns, especially when their child starts to have a mental health episode and they really don't know how to tell, is this just my son or daughter being a teenager or is this mental illness? Just for our audience sake, um, can you speak to that? Can you kind of say this is normal teenage behavior and sure. puberty and this is not? So why don't, why don't we start off that way? Sure. No, that's a, that's a very uh, common question. And um, the, uh, uh, an easy way to answer it initially would be to say, well, by the time someone gets to a mental health professional's office, it's probably more serious than just teenage angst and, and agita because parents usually have tried everything by then to try to help their, their child. And once you make it to a mental health professional's office, now that really raises my index of suspicion for the possibility of a psychiatric illness. Now, that doesn't mean the kid definitely has it, but it, it raises the, the probability greatly. Um, but the more technical way to determine this is, well, let me start by saying this: the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. If you look at, at if you look at the at the contents of it, for like for instance, depressive episode, there are nine criteria. If you have five of nine, you're you're depressed, and you get labeled as having a major depressive disorder. That is not a good way to do diagnosis on the basis of symptoms alone. For instance, you go to the doctor, you have a cough. The doctor doesn't say you have a cough disorder. He tries to figure out which of several illnesses could cause a cough. In a similar way, um, with, with depression, for instance, if a teenager or a young adult comes in depressed and they meet the criteria, well, we know that depression is a symptom of many things. Depression, yes. Bipolar illness, post-traumatic stress disorder, often goes along with anxiety disorder. 
so you really have to get beyond symptoms to determine a if a person is psychiatrically ill and b which psychiatric illness they have um, the other criteria you want to look at too are, we need to keep in mind that depression is a human experience that we all share from time to time but depression as an illness has multiple symptoms and they're persistent and typically there's a family history as well so when you see persistence uh, pervasive symptoms in the family history and it's affecting the kids functioning that's when we know it goes beyond depression in the everyday sense of the word I, I I like that you say family history I mean I think um, everyone needs to be aware of the mental health history in their family and I think a lot of times people don't always talk about it unfortunately so that kind of no. leave, leaves it leaves it more to I guess the clinician or whoever seeing the patient to kind of try to dig in family history and maybe not even use the word depression but Right. Did your mom sleep a lot or was was your mom or dad moody or did they were they addicts or, you know, you kind of have to dig in different ways for families that don't like saying depression or anxiety because it's still this shame connected to it. Uh, now, yes. for 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 a teenager that would be struggling with these things, what is, and, and you had mentioned, I think, that you also work with um, addictions as well and have for quite a while. Why yes. is it, explain explain to parents and to our audience why it is such a common co-occurring disorder for someone to fall into addiction when they have a, a mental health problem? Well, it also depends it depends on which psychiatric illness you have. Uh, yeah. bipolar, bipolar illness in particular is highly associated with substance abuse. And the exact reasons why are not entirely clear. They may have to yeah. do with poor, poor judgment uh, in, in mania, because it's in mania where people tend to use drugs more. Um, but the, the rate of substance abuse in people with bipolar one illness, that's a classic manic depressive illness, uh, runs as high as 60%. And people with bipolar two illness, where they have depressions and only little manias called hypomanias, it runs about 50%. Whereas in plain depression, it's only about 25% of people. So it's especially common in, in people with bipolar illness to have uh, substance abuse problems. But Two-thirds of that's dependence. Um, it's, it's a very serious uh, co-occurring problem. Um, again, probably related to the, the poor judgment that's attendant on, on mania. People tend to think, you know, people are more likely to use when they're depressed to get themselves out of depression. Not really true. It's when people are manic and their judgment is off that they often use alcohol and not surprisingly stimulants, cocaine, amphetamines, ecstasy to prolong and enhance the high. Um, so anyone who works with people with mood disorders, you've really got to be semi-expert at, at ferreting out uh, substance abuse and, and knowing what to do with it. I agree, and it certainly can can complicate a diagnosis for sure. And it is hard to know. It's hard to know what is addiction and what is what is dependence for, you know, and I don't even know that I've ever asked anyone this question, but 
and I'm sure you have researched some, but can you uh, just kind of generalize in layman's terms, why is it that the age of onset for so many disorders is, you know, late puberty, early adulthood? Do you kind of have your theory about that? Is it really just puberty? Like, what is it about our brains that get to that age and then all of a sudden this, it, it starts to pop out and you start to see these things that were, were just not there before. What are your thoughts on right. that? Right. Um, well, l let me answer that more generally and then come back to that specific question. Uh, one of the, because this is a key issue I want your listeners to understand when it comes to making a diagnosis of bipolar versus depression. The reason this disorder, bipolar illness, is often overlooked is because mental health clinicians tend to make the diagnosis on the basis of symptoms alone. Mm -hmm. And you need to look beyond symptoms to family history, as you mentioned, but also the course of the illness, that is the age of onset. And it's a, a key feature of bipolar spectrum illnesses that they have an earlier age of onset of depression than regular depression does. In other words, if your listen, listeners who are mental health professionals can recall their psychopathology course, um, the average age of onset for plain or unipolar depression is the late 20s. For bipolar depression, it's, in, it's age 15 to 19. Oh, wow. So okay. an, early, an early age of onset of depression is not diagnostical bipolar illness, but it's a marker that should make clinicians more suspicious for it, right. especially especially in the setting of a family history of uh, a lot of depression. Now, why is it that um, that's the case, age 15 to 19? Well, there are probably some, there's probably someone who would know the answer to that uh, better than I would. <laughs> that, that may be a little um, too biological a focus. Yeah, I was going to say, really, very more of a neurologist. Focused. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, but obviously uh, adolescents um, are undergoing a lot of uh, neurochemical changes, and that, that's got to be part of it. Um, part of the age of onset, however, also has to do with environment. In other words, yes. if, if, a, if a young person has a family history of depression or bipolar illness and they are abused or traumatized at an early age, uh, profound physical abuse, sexual abuse, that will advance the age of onset of, uh, the, of the illness. In other words, the person is likely to get the illness or its first manifestation at a much younger age. So th there's this typical nature-nurture combination where, you know, if you have the genetic vulnerability and you have the trauma, you'll have the onset of depression, anxiety at a much earlier age. So, you know, both, we, we do know that both those factors, uh, uh, you know, play a role in the age of onset. Well, I like that. I mean, I, th I think that's uh, gave great information. So to review for our listeners, uh, age of onset for 
um, clinical depression or major depressive disorder is mid to late 20s and then the age of onset for bipolar disorder depression would be 15 to 19. I mean, to me, that's huge. Yeah. I, I mean, I, as yeah. my studying as a clinician, I'm not even, when I did my psychopathology course, I'm not even so sure that that distinction was made. So right. I'm so glad that you're, you're getting this information out there. Do you really feel like you're kind of in the minority of understanding and talking about this uh, bipolar spectrum disorder? Do you find that some people just don't buy it? Well, it, it's not something to buy or believe. It, yeah. It, it's it's, it, it's I, reality. I make it <laughs> yeah, I want to make it clear. I want to make it clear. Yeah. It's not. It's not. You know, it's not Brian Quinn's ideas. I, I actually have very right. few original, very few original <laughs> ideas. Um, but what I can tell you, without a doubt, is that this is the emerging science and research over the last. A decade or two and the problem is the short answer to your question is, is yes it's very common in medical practice uh, and psychiatric practice where cl clinical practice habits in this case the prescription of antidepressants lags significantly behind the research showing that antidepressants are not effective for bipolar depression um, that's just a, that's just the fact. Now it's starting to change, but we probably have another ten or twenty years before antidepressants stop getting handed out like candy for anyone with symptoms of depression. Um, it, it, it's it's unfortunate, but most prescribers and most mental health professionals are just haven't been trained or educated well enough to look beyond symptoms to family history, course, uh, and response to medications. There are a bunch of markers in all those categories, maybe we'll get a chance to touch on some more of them, that can really increase the probability that someone has a bipolar spectrum illness. But the main one that I wanted to touch on is the early age of onset. And, and I'm talking about the age of onset of depression. Most and, and this is the other thing that, that's very critical for everyone to understand. A single manic or hypomanic episode defines or clinches the diagnosis of bipolar illness. However, the absence of a history of hypomania or, or mania absolutely does not rule out bipolar illness. It, it does according to DSM, but that's unscientific. And here's why, Melanie. We know that roughly two-thirds to three-quarters of people with bipolar illness, the first episode of illness is depression. Yeah. It's, not, it's not mania. That It's a developmental disorder. And even more important, prior to the onset of depression, many young people who go on to have manic episodes have a history of anxiety, problems, uh, behavioral disorders, and sleep disorders, and sometimes uh, attention deficit disorder symptoms mm. prior to prior to the depression. So you get those in childhood, you get the depression in late adolescence, and it's only later, for two thirds and three quarters of people, that you get a manic episode or a hypomanic episode. 
Interesting. I mean, everything, <laughs> what you're saying is, is so interesting. And I'm, I'm really hoping that a lot of people tune in, especially clinicians. I'll have to make sure that I put that out there when we put your show up, Brian, that, um, sure. you know, clinicians, please, please listen in because these are things that I think need to be heard to kind of, you know, put your, put your little, um, your red flags in your cap when you start hearing about, oh, as a child, they, they were anxious or had, you know, had trouble falling asleep at night or didn't sleep well, or maybe had more nightmares, all these little things that can work together to bring about this diagnosis. And for our, for our listeners that aren't clinicians, the reason why we have the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, which is what we call the DSM, is, is primarily, yes, it is to help us. Yes, this is how I learned about uh, psychopathology as a student when I, in my training. But more than anything, it's for insurance companies. It's a way that we can code in an insurance company so that the insurance company will pay for mental health treatment. So there has to be some type of diagnostic criteria. So for a lot of us, that is, that is what we think about when we think about diagnoses. But I completely understand what you're saying is that really, as you become a seasoned clinician, the DSM is just kind of your, it's your roots. That's where you started. And then you, you start to see how different clients present. And I can promise you mm -hmm. that there has probably never been one client that I saw symptomology and I saw lifestyle and their history. And then I went straight to the DSM and it was perfectly explained, explained in the DSM. That does not happen. I mean, sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, this is just classic major mm -hmm. depressive episode. And sometimes it's that clear. But for the, for the most part, really, it's just about your intuition and your investigation skills and really trying to get to the bottom of someone's diagnosis because the diagnosis really is, for me, I don't know how you feel about it. For me, it was just one little piece of how are you going to help this client get better? It's, I never saw it as a label. It just means, okay, this is how we move forward, knowing the research. And I think sometimes even clients get so stuck on this diagnosis. Do you find that? And it just has more weight than it should? Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, diagnosis is, if you do psychotherapy, is almost not terribly important um, because a lot of what we do in therapy doesn't fit into the medical model. But when you have someone who's suffering with a psychiatric illness, yes, yes. then it's, it's incumbent it's upon yes. yeah, it's, it's incumbent upon people to, to, to make an accurate one. And if you go by a list of symptoms rather than family history, course of illness, uh, response to medication, uh, you're going to make a, a lot of mistakes. It, it, so the other issue with the diagnosis is that depression and ADHD have largely lost their stigma, um, mm -hmm. but bipolar illness has not. Um, it, it's starting to change. But, um, you know, years ago, if you went to see a psychiatrist, um, a generation ago, I mean, that was highly stigmatized. Now, if you live in a place like New York and you don't see a psychiatrist, there's something wrong with you. Um, <laughs> uh, 
and and everyone is very ready to say, yeah, that's my depression or that's my ADHD kicking in. No one ever says, oh, that's my bipolar illness. That's my mania kicking in. So that stigma is another thing that gets in the way of this diagnosis. Um, uh, families um, and clinicians and psychiatrists, everyone's a little reluctant to, to, to put this label on people. And labels, you have to be careful, but they're very, very important in one regard. And that's if you're going to do medical or psychiatric treatment. Um, yeah. And, and that's, that's the, the key thing is that you need to look beyond symptoms uh, to get to the accurate diagnosis. Why? If you're going to use medication, that's why. Exactly, exactly. Why do you think uh, clinicians and, and, you know, prescribing doctors are hesitant to prescribe mood stabilizers? Um, like I, I read right. in your work, I mean, lithium truly is one of the, uh, you know, I've, I've talked on the show before about my brother who was, who was bipolar and, uh, you know, he was up and down his entire life and would just never be compliant, which I know is another issue with, with people that are bipolar is, is medication compliance, but um, he was eventually was in legal trouble and just en ended up mm. in prison actually for not paying child support because uh, he sure. was he had gotten sick and wasn't working and just you know he, he had mental health serious mental health issues and while he was in prison he act we had a family doctor that had known us for years and had known my brother before he um had started having mental health problems and you know was just always this real likable gregarious person and and this doctor right. literally this was our family doctor went to see him every single day I'm not kidding, every single day and made sure that every day he took his medication. Then he backed off to three days a week and then he backed off to two days a week and then he backed off to one. And why this was, you know, he was in this stint in prison and every day he was taking his medication. And when he got out, he was literally a different person. He was on uh, Wellbutrin and Lithium. Wellbutrin's mm -hmm. a, I guess, atypical antidepressant and then he was on lithium and and he had you know seven years of the best years of his life and was able to be very successful and had his own business and did wonderful mm. um right. because for the first time in his life i think you know since he was probably 12 or 13 years old as i as i can look back was as early as he started having some mental health issues with anxiety and uh, just being very um, yeah, moody um, and sure. violent sometimes sure. as well. Sure. This is uncontrollable temper um, as, as a, as a very young teenager. And, you know, he literally was like, I don't, I don't remember the last time that I felt quote normal. And that's what I hear a lot of people say that end up getting on a mood stabilizer is it just changes their life like immediately. Yeah. <laughs> and they finally right. feel quote, themselves again. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. 
And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. So speak, talk, talk about that. Talk about mood stabilizers and why it makes such a difference for people that maybe have been, um, you know, have not responded well to typical antidepressants. Right. Uh, well, there's a great deal of stigma attached to the use of lithium. There's a great deal of fear and misunderstanding about lithium. It's considered to be, oh, it's a horrible drug with these terrible side effects and it's for crazy people. And and that's that's absolutely not the case. Um, um, it, it's interesting. The American Psychiatric Association's uh, standard of practice is to avoid the use of antidepressants in people with uh, bipolar illness. But the standard practice is quite the opposite, where most people with bipolar illness get antidepressants often for many years in the absence of mood stabilizers. Um, the, the average length of time from first symptoms, like your brother, um, who had problems with his temper and anxiety, and uh, the average length of time from first symptoms to accurate diagnosis is uh, over 10 years. And oh, my during gosh. The, and wow. During, those, during that time, guess which medications people tend to get? They tend and to get antidepressants. Or sometimes, yeah. sometimes stimulants, um, and uh, they often go through you know two, three, or four different antidepressants, and they just don't do well. Um, some people do okay, but but many don't. So um, the mood stable stabilizers like lithium, uh, Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal, um, these drugs um, have been found to except for Lamictal, um, which is contrary to popular belief, uh, they have acute antidepressant effects. And mm -hmm. they, when used l lightly for people with spectrum illnesses, not full-blown mania, um, and monitored, they're, they're often um, have very few side effects and um, really are the drugs that key people stable over the long term and that's what's key it's not just treating the current depression it's keeping people from cycling into future depressions antidepressants have been shown to be ineffective unequivocally ineffective in preventing new depressive episodes in bipolar patients and some people they can actually increase the cycling um, but antidepressants and stimulants don't have as much stigma attached to them and they're also they're also a little easier to work with. A psychiatrist can just give a person a prescription for an antidepressant and say, "Come see me in a month, and let's see how you're doing." You can't do that with the mood stabilizers. Uh, you need to do blood work, and you need to uh, monitor the level in the blood and its effect on various organ systems. So, because of this combination of stigma, misunderstanding, and increased difficulty with the management. People and doctors too tend to put off prescribing these drugs, and it's 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 unfortunate. Um, lithium is still the gold standard um, for treatment of bipolar illness. 
Depakote is somewhat better for people who have a lot of irritability and so-called mixed states. Um, but lithium still has a very rational role to play. People worry that it's a horrible drug with terrible side effects. Whether it's going to hurt your kidneys. It does affect kidney functioning, but the, the percentage of people who have really bad effects from lithium to their kidneys uh, are, are ones who take it, you know, over decades at very high doses. Um, when it's monitored and used at low doses, and taken once a day in the evening, the, the chances of it having it adversely affect your kidneys even over the long run is about 1%. So people don't need to be afraid of these drugs, but unfortunately, they often are. I agree, you know, especially lithium. Just you know, you you say that word, and I think most people automatically think of psychiatric hospitals and quote crazy people, which is just horrible Absolutely. that we yeah. even say that that we even say that in society. But I, I really think that's what they think. It's this this hard drug that makes you a zombie, and it's it it is just not the case. So, you know, can't we just call it something else, right? Can't we just call it something right. else so people right. can stop being worried about it? <laughs> well, one thing is, one thing that people need to know about lithium too, it's often not appreciated. It's a natural treatment. It, it's a, it's an element. It's, it's occurs naturally in the earth as a salt. Um, yeah, you do have to take it in somewhat unnatural quantities, but it is a natural it is a natural treatment uh, as opposed to every other medication we have, which, you know, which are artificial molecules. So um, lithium was the, made in the Big Bang 14 billion years ago, and uh, it's still useful today. So. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, oddly, I had never, ever thought about it that way, Dr. Quinn. I really hadn't to think about that it is a mm. natural substance. And but yeah. when you take yeah. it, it is taken in, I guess, very high doses. How interesting. Mm. I had never thought about it that way. But I guess lithium is on the on the um, what do you call it? The table that you use in chemistry, the isn't it? Yeah, yeah the periodic the table. It's on yeah, there. It's, it's right, yeah. next to, right next door to sodium. Okay. Interesting. Wow. So do you, yeah. I mean, I guess, gosh, as a scientist, you must think there must be some type of deficit maybe in people with bipolar. Um, something just isn't quite, quite firing off there with, with um, well, minerals not, in their body. Uh, I don't know. Again, we're not really sure. Um, yeah. But the, what we do know without beyond a shadow of a doubt after Six decades of research by independent academic people, not by drug companies, is that you know lithium is um, a safe and when it's monitored, a safe and, and very effective drug. It's the it's the closest thing we have to a cure for psychiatric illness. Really, now there there are some of your listeners may have used lithium or their relatives may have. And they may have had, you know, uh, bad results. Bad side or, effects, or, yeah. Or bad side effects. But that typically comes from a misapplication of the use of lithium. In other words, if you're a manic, full-blown manic, you need to have very high doses of lithium to, to bring you down. Usually they're well tolerated. Mm. But if you're depressed, which uh, people fail to realize, bipolar disorder is predominantly a depressive illness. People spend 
the vast majority of the time they're ill. Yeah. yeah. In, in the depressive phase of the illness. If you take lithium at, at doses used for mania when you're depressed, you will get absolutely sick on it. it it's, it's not that the, it's the lithium that's the problem. It's usually it's dosed too aggressively or it's dosed twice or three times a day, which is not, which is absolutely not necessary. It, it, it has much fewer side effects at low doses taken all at once and taken all at once at night. Um, and it also spares your kidneys when, when it co comes uh, to that as well. So, again, if some of your listeners have, have had bad experiences with lithium or know something that does, um, I, I understand that, but chances are they were dosed improperly for it. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that just comes from, you know, not, not being completely educated on the doctor's side or, or just not maybe taking the time to figuring it out. It, it, the whole, you know, the whole concept of, of mental health and medication is just, it's, it's difficult because oftentimes people don't even have the language to describe how they're feeling after they start taking a medication. Um, right. And so it's not like you take, you have a headache, you take uh, ibuprofen and your headache's gone. It's just not that simple. And so you, it, it's, it depends on the patient communicating with the doctor. And then it depends on the doctor, you know, perceiving the communication that the client is getting to, to figure it all out. I mean, really, it can just be a really difficult thing and why it's so important that you actually have a good relationship and that you have the verbiage you need to say, well, I'm feeling a little more jittery on this dose and maybe I felt less so-and-so on this dose so because dosage is so important. I feel like people really um, don't give that the importance that it needs to be because everyone's so different and, and finding that mm -hmm. right dosage can really, you know, be a difference between, oh, this is the right medication and no, this is just completely the wrong medication. Um, and so it, it's just really complicated. I feel like it's a, it's a complicated, um, you know, recovery well, path. <laughs> well, well if, I, if, I, if I may, let me just throw one other twist onto that too. Um, some of your listeners may say, well, I've been on lithium, I've been on Depakote and it didn't work. Um, that's that's another side of the coin of the problem with lithium. What the listeners who've had that experience need to know is that unlike your brother who did well in a combination of an antidepressant and lithium, mm -hmm. and it can it, it can happen. If someone who is bipolar is taking lithium or Depakote-Tegretol, and they're also on an antidepressant, and they're not getting better. It's because they're on the antidepressant. Right, not stop because, taking not, that. Yeah. Not, not because the lithium's not working. In other words, when people are titrated gradually off the antidepressant and they stay just on mood stabilizer combinations or mood stabilizers, atypical antipsychotics like um, uh, uh, Latuda, for instance, when you have that combination in the absence of antidepressants, people often will then get better and they'll have a nice response to the to the lithium 
in combination with another mood stabilizer, as long as the antidepressants are not in the mix. So that's something to keep in mind, and especially your mental health commission listeners want to always ask people when they say, oh, I've tried lithium or Depakote, it didn't work. Always ask them, were you on an antidepressant when you were on it? The answer is mm-hmm. yes. It wasn't mm-hmm. a fair. It wasn't a fair trial. Uh, yeah. And then, and then the final issue with that medication thing that's a little bit of a twist is, especially for women with bipolar disorder, especially older women who are perimenopausal or postmenopausal, if you're taking mood stabilizers and not antidepressants and you're not doing well. Um, you really have to have your thyroid functioning checked as well. There's a very close relationship between thyroid functioning and how well someone does, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're an older woman. And don't let the doctor say, well, your thyroid levels are normal. What the science has shown is that what's normal and what's optimal may be two different things. I've seen, and it's in the research, dramatic results with people adding thyroid supplements to their medication regimen and they get they get better in ways that medication alone never really was able to help. Oh, I totally agree. I, I ran into that. I am kind of chronically iron deficient. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I went to the doctor and was like, hey, you know, I've always just been this active fit person. And lately, I just I always feel like I'm treading water. I literally feel like, you know, my chin, my mouth is just above water. That's what I feel like all the time, just always pushing, pushing, mm. pushing. So, mm. you know, did blood work, did thyroid, everything was okay. Um, you know, I was concerned about the iron because my mom has always been kind of iron deficient too. No, came back, your iron levels are normal. Well, then I handed my blood work over to a friend of mine who's a physician and Mm -hmm. he's kind of OCD and took a look at it. And he was just like, let me show you something. He was just like, these are the three things that I look for when I'm worried that someone might be iron deficient. And he's like, every single one of these three that I'm looking at, you're literally right on the border of being low. And what had happened is when someone does your blood work, unless something is starred, it doesn't show up at the end. So some physicians that do blood work are not even going to, if nothing comes up on the bottom that says, the computer says this is low, they're not going to look through your paperwork. They just don't do it. And so everything was just right, right on the edge of being, and you know, all it took was me taking two iron pills a day and I feel better than I felt in 10 years. I mean, honestly, Um, and and it's made a huge difference in my life. It's made a huge difference in my life. And that's that's a good example, good example of the difference between normal and optimal. Uh, Exactly. it's very much the case with thyroid functioning. Thyroid functioning is it's a very wide range. And although it can be perfectly normal to be in the lower quarter of the range, um, if you're a woman with bipolar illness or unremitting depression, and you're not doing well, your thyroid function is in a lower quarter of the range or even a lower half. It may be normal, but it may not be optimal. And again, right. this is not... This is not Brian Quinn's idea. This is this is this is this is the science and the research. So yeah, yeah. I want to ask you one more question before we have to wrap up. And you sure. were you were talking about uh, being on a mood stabilizer alone. And I think I was reading in your work that even um, the mood stabilizer stabilizers like lithium and Depakote, they do have a small 
um, effect on depression. Now, yeah. number one, why is it that bipolar depression is so bad? <laughs> mm-hmm. It really, I've seen some, I mean, I remember my brother literally just laying in bed or on the couch in the fetal position yep. and not being able yep. to, I mean, it's, it's, it's like they're dead already. It was horrible, yeah. horrible yeah. to see. And it was bad. And then when, when someone say someone's on a mood stabilizer, do you have you seen that they don't get to that depressive state or is that when you add something and then take them off when they come out of the depression what what's the answer there well well again i'll, I'll tell you what the research says well just you know what i think because right. what i what i what i think is not terribly important but what the research <laughs> what the research says is that especially lithium and depakote um, have acute antidepressant effects. Okay. Um, and the what you're talking about, bipolar depression, there are many forms of it, but one common form your brother obviously had was what's called um, uh, atypical depression. It's not that it's uncommon, it's just that yes. typical depression is a person, you know, doesn't sleep and they don't eat. In bipolar depression, People can sleep 12, 14 hours a day, get up, and they feel exhausted, and they just sit on the couch. It's uh, they, they can often overeat. They feel lethargic. They have no motivation. I mean, it's not surprisingly, it's the mirror opposite of the overproductive, overactive state that they're in when they're yeah. manic. Yeah. And the... the the, the important thing is that you do not need an antidepressant, and you should not use an antidepressant acutely for someone who has a bipolar depression. First of all, it, there's a small chance it could make them manic. Second of all, it could get them better, and then they'll cycle back into another depression, which just doesn't work as well. Lithium and Depakote have good antidepressant properties. You often have to combine them, just like you do for high blood pressure or AIDS. You have to combine these medications, and oftentimes combine them with psychotherapy as well, because there are mm-hmm. there are bipolar there are bipolar specific psychotherapies as well. But it's a misconception that if you're depressed, you need an antidepressant. If you're bipolar and you're depressed, I'm, the research doesn't say never use it. It just says avoid the routine initial use. Go with mood stabilizer combinations and atypical antipsychotics. If you do need an antidepressant, the research says, then use it until you're feeling better and then you go off it. Otherwise, you can run the risk of um, having adverse uh, effects, cycling, that sort of thing. Right. But, and I mean, but it's so, it's so easy to, to understand why clinicians initially prescribe an antidepressant and that's why it's so important to dig in the family history because if someone is coming in when you have bipolar and your onset is a depressive episode which it almost always is then of course that is going to be your first line of let's get this person on an antidepressant and get them better but really if you dig deeper and you find that there is this bipolar you know and dig into their childhood and these other things are coming up then it really might be better just to start on now by yeah go ahead i'm sorry no no if you know, just just I was just going to say to start on a on a mood stabilizer. I just want to point out that clinicians out there, we totally understand how easy the mistake is made, and then how easy it would be for ten years later, this person still has isn't doing any better. Well, 
we probably right. know why, right? But anyway, yeah. what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say by 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 way of summary and and to answer answer that point, it's not, it's not even so much digging deeply as it is digging broadly. Yes. In other words, clinicians do not want to make the mistake of of, of going from symptoms of depression to diagnosis of depression to referral for prescription of antidepressants because depression can occur in a lot of different illnesses. What you need to do is you need to look at family history for multi-generation family history of depression. It may not be bipolar illness. It Also, there can be family history of suicide, psychiatric hospitalizations, or in the good end of things, you see family histories of people with artistic talent, temperaments, entrepreneurial skills, because the manic, the manic edge uh, gives people this extroverted, highly productive temperament that also makes them successful entrepreneurs and artists and that sort of thing. That's this link between creativity and madness. So family history, age of onset of depression uh, is very important. Also, um, how quickly the depressions come on and turn off. Depressions that come on and turn off quickly are more typically bipolar than unipolar. Depressions that are brief, two to three months, as opposed to six to 12 months, more often bipolar. Family history, course, um, and then response to medications. People who cycle, who've been on several different antidepressants, uh, and any one of these is not necessarily diagnostic. What your listeners want to know is, when you start seeing several of these things from different categories, when you dig more broadly away from just symptoms, the pieces of the puzzle start coming together. And it really can make a huge difference in someone's life. I'm sure you've seen this. I'm sure you've seen people that have been on antidepressants and then all of a sudden they get on the right medication and they're you know, they're able to function in society and have right. relatively, you know, successful and happy and well lives. And again, just I, I think a lot of people just feel like they get their lives back. Um, and unfortunately, right. I think so many times with mood disorders, people just uh, because I think it makes people feel out of control and you don't trust yeah. yourself when you have a right. mood disorder, I think. And so I feel like that's part of why the you know, substance abuse piece is there because you're not even in control of your own feelings and the substance abuse is in your mind helping you have control over how you feel. Um, so right. for those that don't understand bipolar, just imagine that of not even having control over what you physically feel like, it would be very frightening. Uh, yeah. And so to be able to rein that back in and, and have a, a normal mood state would be would be good. But well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. I, I love um, the, the depth of your knowledge about bipolar and your efforts to try to get this information out there about bipolar spectrum illness. And um, we'll definitely have to have you on again. And you'll just have to let oh, us know sure. what what you're uh, what you're doing. So let our audience know how they can get in touch with you. Okay. Well, I have a website, brianquinnphd.com, brianquinnphd.com. Uh, the names of the books, again, the Depression Sourcebook, second edition, and the Wiley Concise Guides, W-I-L-E-Y, Wiley Concise Guides to Mental Health Bipolar Disorder. 
Um, people can email me uh, if they have questions or concerns. Uh, it's B Quinn, B is in Brian, B Quinn 10, the number 10. B Quinn 10 at Optimum. That's O P T I M as in Mary, U M as in Mary.net. So B Quinn 10 at Optimum.net. And um, I also do phone consultations for clinicians or uh, patients and their families who feel stuck and are not doing very well, and uh, call me at 631-424-5042, 631-424-5042. That's a Eastern time zone phone number. Okay, awesome. And it looks like you're in New York. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, that's wonderful. It sounds like our audience has a lot of ways that they can get in touch with you or even get some uh, consulting, I guess. So you would work directly with a psychiatrist, basically. Is that what you normally consult doing or well, how I does that usually with, work for I, I you? Would, I, would, I would work with them. They normally don't want to work with me. Uh, I'm sure I'm they not, don't. I, I get I'm it. The, I'm not, I'm not the <laughs> You're not the doctor. doctor. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> I guess I joke with you before. People often say, you know, Doctor Quinn, are you a medical doctor? Um, so what I, what I, who I consult with are patients and families and, and typically non-medically trained mental health professionals who are feeling stuck with their with their patients or their family members, and uh, I like to try to see um, what what treatment might be different, both medically but also psychotherapeutically. Um, uh, the thyroid issue, um, some natural supplements can be useful as well. So I, I go over all that with clinicians and families. Nice. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you're doing wonderful work. Thank you for everything you're doing and what you're contributing to the field. And I want to thank you for joining us again and thank our audience for joining us for another mm -hmm. episode of Mental Health News Radio. Thanks so much, Mel. But never without good intentions I heat up and act on my emotions Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you I can fight it. Good boy.